You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Happy New Year's and a day of firsts. So Jake's first baptism, Matt's first baptism, and my first time as your outreach director getting to preach at the 940 service. Woohoo! I'm excited. So we're, uh, we're wrapping up the Isaiah series. We're launching into a new year. We're talking about the suffering servant. And I don't know about you, but in my years here at Schweitzer, I've heard Bob talk about wounded healers a lot. Kind of the, uh, uh, the many suffering servants, if you will. And, and the wounded healers acknowledges that all of us are wounded. I mean, this world is crazy. It's painful. And we're all wounded. And as followers of Christ, we're all supposed to imitate him by being healers who bring restoration. And so before we talk more about our role as wounded healers, we're going to kind of dive into Isaiah, learn from Isaiah, Dive into Jesus, learn more from Jesus, and learn from Gary Steele, who would roll over in his grave if he knew I put him in with those other two. I love the book of Isaiah. I I probably first fell in love with Isaiah when I was struggling, and somebody told me, hey, you know, you can understand the overall structure of the Bible if you just understand the overall structure of Isaiah. So I'm going to give you a little tip here that you can use in Bible trivia, all right? There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. How many books are there in the Bible? 66, that's right. And Isaiah, there's this huge break in the theme of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. The chapter that is just full of all sorts of verses that you know and love. Mount up with wings like eagles. Walk and not grow weary and and run and not faint. But the, the huge break in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 is comfort. Comfort ye my people. Isaiah captured, or sorry, Handel captured that break in Handel's Messiah. The very first words are that break in chapter 40 in Isaiah. So, how many chapters are there in the first part of Isaiah if the big break is at 40? 39, right. So there are 39 chapters in the first part of Isaiah, 39 books in the Old Testament. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are about the law. And, oh, Israel, you've been breaking the law, so punishment is going to come, kind of doom and gloom. Sounds like the Old Testament, right? And then Isaiah 40 starts with comfort, And the rest of it is about the suffering servant and how he's going to bring restoration in the world. Kind of sounds like the New Testament. Jesus comes and launches the church. There, that one's for free. That's Bible trivia. How many chapters in Isaiah? How many books in the Bible? There you go. That'll help you someday. I don't know where, but maybe. What we're going to focus on right now is Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Because these are the verses that Jesus used in his big reveal when he went home to start his ministry. Stand with me, if you will, and we're going to read the the verses from Isaiah first. And what was he, as he was picturing these, he was receiving these verses. He He was torn up because he knew that Israel was going into captivity, but he received these verses and knew there's hope coming for Israel, even when they're in Babylonian captivity. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort 
all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they might be oaks of righteousness, mighty oaks, the planting of the Lord, so that he will be glorified. The words of God for all of us, the people of God. God. Yeah, thank you. Be seated. These words are just these vivid word pictures that that God gave to Isaiah about, yeah, the the coming freedom for Israel out of captivity, but but I think Isaiah was seeing beyond that. Oh, there's some figure out in the future. And, And even beyond that, these words apply. So there's this picture of, you know, the first phrase of freedom and liberty, somebody kind of running through the streets, free at last, free at last, we're free, we're going home. Hope is a powerful thing. The children of Israel who were in the Babylonian captivity read those words with deep hope. The, the words hit us. I mean, in all the cages that we put ourselves in and that life puts us in, these words just scream, freedom. Then, then he goes into this proclamation about the favorable year of the Lord. So that's kind of a reference back to the year of Jubilee, right? The year of Jubilee in the Old Testament was every seven years, the Jews were supposed to forgive each other completely for their debts. If you owed me a debt and I took your land because of it, every seven years I was supposed to give your land back to you. If you had given yourself into slavery to me to pay off your debt, I was supposed to set you free. And not only that, we were all supposed to give the land a break for one year, every seven years. Total rest. And the Jews didn't do that. Israel didn't do that. It was too costly for the same reason we don't do Sabbath. Daryl Decker has has this theory that he's kind of come to from Scripture that I think is pretty potent. The Jews spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity because for 490 years they did not practice the year of Jubilee. 490 divided by 7 is 70. God let the land rest for those 70 years that he intended for it to rest by getting the people off the land. Then he talks about the day of vengeance of our God. Frankly, I wanted to skip that verse. It's kind of painful. But, you know, you know, there are a couple of views about this. So I went and I talked to my wife about this passage because Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 is my wife's life verse. Colette, at a young age, read across this and thought, oh, that's Jesus directly speaking to me. This is what I'm supposed to do in my life. So she's thought a lot about it and prayed a lot about it and acted a lot on it. So I asked her what these verses meant. And when, she, when I got to this one, the, to comfort, or the, the day of vengeance of our God, she said, Perhaps God's idea of vengeance is wreaking glorious forgiveness on us. I thought that was really weird. And then I kind of dug back into the commentaries. You know, think about the the Israelites coming out of Babylonian captivity. If you read Nehemiah about them going back and rebuilding Jerusalem, it was a great event for the Israelites. For the people around Israel, the nations that hated Israel, not so much. It was kind of like vengeance to them. Kind of like you getting freedom in your life was God wreaking vengeance on Satan's efforts to destroy you. I like Colette's twist on the day of vengeance. Then then Isaiah goes into this beautiful picture that contrasts a funeral to a wedding. You know, think of a time in your life when you were desperate, 
desolate may be. In Isaiah's time, people would rip their clothes, sit with ashes actually on their head, kneeling, crying, and they would fast for days and days and get faint, right? So that's kind of the picture in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, or, or verses 2 and 3 there. But then there's this other picture of God holding this glorious wedding feast, grabbing us out of that morning, pulling us into the wedding feast. We walk in the door. He puts this cool little flower ring on our head, you know, sprays us with cologne or perfume so that we smell good to ourselves and to everybody around us, and then gives us a, a nice outer jacket that, that's kind of festive so we can enjoy the dancing and have a cool souvenir, right? But it doesn't end there. The provision just keeps pouring in and pouring in and pouring in so that we become these oaks of righteousness. And when I asked Colette what that meant to her, she said, oh, that brings to vision for me Revelation 22, 1 through 2. All right, so here's Revelation 22, 1 through 2. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God. And of the Lamb in the middle of the street. I mean, it's just pouring out from God's throne, consuming everything. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree, and here's the important part, were for the healing of the nations. So those oaks of righteousness in, in Isaiah, Colette, her mind just immediately goes to Revelation and the healing of the nations that these mighty trees that are getting their source from the river of God are for all the nations around. And she said, but not only that, you know, this also brings to mind Zechariah 10.3b. Huh? Well, you know, olive trees are these little gnarly things that are kind of small and oaks are these huge majestic things, which in Zechariah says... For the Lord of heaven's armies has arrived to look after Judah, his flock. Dumb sheep. I could say that because my father-in-law raised sheep, all right? And he says he was convinced. He quit raising them because they were too hard. He said he was convinced that the sheep had a meeting every night, sitting around, trying to figure out creative ways to die the next day. <laughs> and he just he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand finding all the sheep dead in his field. So, and we're, but that's what God calls us. We, like sheep, have gone astray. I mean, so anyway, Zechariah, though, he says, I can take a dumb sheep, and he will make them strong and glorious like a proud war horse in battle. Wow. Colette just loves that picture of what the Lord does to us. You know what? It's a wedding. He, he, he equips us, and then he turns us into these courageous, mighty beings. But you have to think about Paul. I mean, God's idea of a war horse isn't this thing going around killing people. I and mean, Paul said, I have been all things to all people. I've been shipwrecked. I've been snake bit. I've been beat. I've been lowered out of baskets, out of, out of cities, all those things. And still, it's all worth it. This courageous, wounded healing. Think about what a war horse goes through for its rider in the middle of a battle. So speaking of courage, let's jump forward to our hero, our, our idol, about 800 years in history, to Jesus and the great reveal. 
So Luke 4, 14 through 30. By the way, where Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 is on that placard in our prayer room back there. It's all over our church. I mean, this is, this is what Jesus says it's all about, right? Let me, but let me set the stage. So a couple months earlier, Jesus went to the Jordan and he was baptized. And the dove came down out of heaven and the voice said, This is my son in whom... I'm well pleased, right? Jesus comes out of the baptism. The Holy Spirit takes him, some some verses say, drives him into the wilderness for a 40-day fast. And at the end of that 40 days, he is tempted by Satan three times. He passes those temptations with flying colors. He's kind of laid this deep, deep foundation for this ministry, right? He comes out of the wilderness very confident in who he is, knowing what's coming, Starts going through Galilee, preaching at the different synagogues, and he starts getting this reputation. Hey, have you heard about Jesus? Man, he teaches in ways that nobody, nobody's ever taught. I even hear that he's healing people. And this, this rumor kind of started spreading, and it made it to Nazareth. And then when Jesus walked into Nazareth to, start te- to come to their synagogue to teach, he was the hometown hero. I mean, he was the man. He was a superstar coming home with all his friends and family singing, Jesus Christ, superstar. Wait, wait, no, wait. That was later in history. Okay. Uh, but you kind of get the picture. That was the setting where he was coming in for that first time to speak in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. Okay? He stepped up to the platform. People were hushed because they expected something from him. They were hoping that he was going to claim something. The attendant came and brought him the Isaiah scroll. He carefully took it, carefully unrolled it to this passage. And he looked at him. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. I just went blank, so I'm going to look at it. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He stopped there. He didn't need to quote the rest. They knew this chapter. This was the messianic chapter. This is the chapter that the Messiah was going to fulfill. You know, the guy who was going to come and conquer Rome. And then he said the words that they were hoping to hear. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were elated. Yes! We knew it. We knew it. We knew it. He's claiming to be the Messiah. The freedom is coming. He's going to set us free from Rome. I mean, they were excited. Who knows what all they were thinking because they had their concepts of what the Messiah was going to be. But they were excited because their hometown hero boy was it. And then he kind of quieted them. And he went into the next three verses that, frankly, I don't understand a lot. All I know is at the end of those three verses, they wanted to kill him. And, I mean, all he did was tell a story about Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. I don't see the significance in that, so I went back to the commentaries, and here's what they said. Here's what scholars say. Basically, what Jesus said was, you all think that the Messiah is coming, me, just for the Jews. He's not. I am here for all nations. He just completely blew their image of what the Messiah was going to be, and they instantly wanted to kill him for it. So they rose up. I meant all that love instantly turned to hate. They rose up as one, a huge mob, pushing him out towards the edge of the city, intending to throw him over the cliff and kill him right there. But his time had not yet come, and he just kind of slipped through the crowds and went on. The suffering servant. 
I can't imagine anything more suffering than having my hometown friends and family all of a sudden want to kill me and start saying those rumors about me again, about my birth. And we're supposed to imitate that guy. We're supposed to be courageous people who are willing to go against anything in our society to do justice and mercy. Well, let me tell you the story of a wounded healer who uh, Jesus used to bring restoration into my life. Gary Steele. I first ran into Gary Steele when he was about in his late 50s, going on 100. And I read his medical form. I was an intern at Discovery Ministries about to go on a whitewater trip and read, this guy's had heart surgery and he's coming on whitewater paddling. Hey, aren't we afraid he'll die on the river? Shouldn't we not allow him to come? And they said, ah, it's Gary Steele. Don't worry about it. I found out he had wrecked three airplanes and walked away from all those wrecks. He had eyewitness proof that on leading a trip to the Boundary Waters, a bear came and took one of their food buckets. Gary Steele chased down the bear and got the food back. <laughs> and for the rest of that trip was offering people, hey, you want some bear breath cheese? I mean, the guy is incorrigible, all right? So uh, this story takes place when uh, I was working at Discovery Ministries. Gary was at uh, Cookson Hills and he was in charge of their food. And once a year, they would give us a big food distribution. So we would all drive and meet halfway. Oh, the Buffalo River happened to be halfway, all right? So we would uh, meet in January because that's when we could all get off to go for a trip on the Buffalo River, which most people think is crazy. But I'm telling you, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes and poor training, all right? That's the theme we went by. Anyway, this story kind of started because the river was up and there was some pretty wild water on it. We were talking about how much more challenging it is to control a river tripping canoe than it is a whitewater canoe, All right? So we get on the river, we go down. Now I get, need to give a couple of explanations. So you'll see, hopefully on this picture, okay, the canoes, uh, uh, rapids is where the water goes fast and there are big rocks and that creates wave which makes you go, woohoo, right? Rapids in a river. Now those are, so you kind of see some rapids there. There's an eddy in the back. An eddy is a place on a river, uh, even in the middle of rapids, behind a big rock, the water is, sits still. So if you can get your canoe in there, you sit still, even in the middle of rapids, like those canoes are doing in the background of this picture, right? So that gives you some definitions. So we came to the first rapids. I went first, and I saw an eddy, and I caught the eddy. And then Gary Steele came through, and I was just kind of sitting there nonchalantly with my arms crossed looking at him. I kind of did that. And we both knew what I was telling him was, I can catch an eddy in a tripping canoe. So we went down the river a little further. I went first. I went through the, rap the next rapids, and I caught an eddy again. And uh, Gary Steele came through that next rapids standing up in his canoe paddling through, looking around, whistling at the beautiful scenery. And we both knew what he was telling me, right? So we went down the river a little further. I waded back and let Gary Steele go through first. And Gary Steele went through the rapids, and he did what I knew he would do. He caught an eddy. And then I came through the rapids, standing up in my canoe, going backwards, looking at the beautiful scenery, whistling and ignoring Gary Steele, right? Thinking, OK, this, this settles it. it we're done. Well, Gary Steele is the master of comedic timing. He waited about two hours down the river. We went through another rapids. I caught an eddy. Gary Steele came through doing a headstand in his canoe. Did I tell you he was about 100 years old? I'm telling you. The guy's amazing. So uh, I went up to him and said, Gary, look, one of us has to be mature enough to stop this nonsense. 
And we both knew that I was kind of caving because it was cold outside. Did I tell you that it was barely above freezing during the day and way below freezing at night? Kind of almost like today on that day in the river. Anyway, fast forward a couple years. And I need to give you a couple, another definition. So here we go. Um, what this person in the foreground is doing is surfing a wave. On a river, if, a, if, you get, if you get your canoe facing upstream and the wave is going like this and you ride down the front of the wave at the same speed that the river is coming downstream, there's a sweet spot where they meet and the forces are the same and your canoe just sits still. That's called surfing a wave. And you can kind of go back and forth on the way. I'm telling you, it works. Don't give me that look. I'm telling you, it does work. Surfing is a real thing, right? So that's what this person is doing, surfing. The other reason I'm showing you this picture is because that is the same wave that you're going to see in a minute that you can't tell that it's there because the boat kind of covers the picture, all right? So a bunch of people had gathered for a Discovery Ministries Whitewater Seminar, and it was a great day. There was a bunch of people taking turns surfing that wave, kind of like this group is doing. And Colette and I were in a tandem canoe. We got out on the wave. We surfed. And uh, some other people got on the waves and surfed and flipped over, right? But Gary Steele was there watching, and Colette and I went over and whispered because we remembered what Gary Steele had done on the Buffalo River. So Colette and I went back out on that wave, got as balanced as we possibly could get, and did this. Now, Colette does not like this picture because her feet are not perfectly pointed straight up in the air. But that is my wife doing a headstand while we were surfing a class three wave that other people had just flipped on, right? The moral of this story is not how great of paddlers Colette and I are. The moral of the story is we would have never conceived that unless Gary Steele had done it first. Gary Steele could get me to do all sorts of things. On the river, he would do it this way. <clears throat> I don't think you can do that. Matter of fact, that looks too dangerous. I don't think anybody could do that. And I, I, I just couldn't resist. He knew what he was doing to me. I knew what he was doing, and I'd still go try it. He got me to do crazy things that nobody ever could that I couldn't even conceptualize. I am a much better paddler because I paddled with Gary Steele. But there, the influence didn't stop there. I will never forget Gary Steele's devotion on David's mighty men, challenging all of us to be mighty men of God. And Gary Steele taught me, he gave me great advice about how to love my wife and how to love my kids. Gary had Crohn's disease in the later years of his life. As a matter of fact, in 2008, when we were paddling on the Nantahala River, Gary recognized that I had some of the same symptoms as he did. And he started comforting me and talking to me, preparing me for the diagnosis I had two days after that trip of ulcerative colitis. And, uh, oh boy, from, from 2008 to 2015, Gary talked to me a lot in deep ways about Jesus and about relationships and about dealing with physical limitations. October 19, 2015, Gary Steele died. And I could not attend his funeral because I was recuperating from my surgery to have my colon removed to cure my ulcerative colitis. There are so many ways that I am better because of having been in a mentor relationship with Gary Steele. He brought great restoration to me, to my family, to the places where I worked, even though those people didn't even know him. He is such a classic example of a wounded healer, a person in this crazy life just trying his best to follow the suffering Jesus and do his best to heal other people around him. So what about you? What about me? What does this mean for us? 
since we are Christ followers, we are called to be courageous healers who bring healing to the nation. Every experience you've had, every strength, every weakness you have, most importantly, the dependence that you and I have on Jesus, we are called to bring to bear in every situation in which we have influence. Linda Harper, in a recent training here at Schweitzer, said, you have to own your own stuff before you can become a healer. And as Jim Mason and I were working together to prepare this sermon, he said, I'm wounded, then I have experience with Christ, and as I grow in him, I get restored. Then I am a wounded healer. You know, no matter how deeply wounded you have been or how hopeless your situation in life looks right now, Christ can bring that restoration. I, so Omar Rikabi, in uh, our daily seed bed, yesterday posted that he was really struggling in the, at the end of his college years. You know, all his friends were going on to do important things, and here he was sticking his finger up his nose, trying to figure out what he was going to be when he grew up. And in a time of prayer with the Lord, Jesus said to him, I am your dream. All else flows from me. You know, the focus that I have right now that I, I feel like Jesus is calling me to is, is to really bolster mentorship at Schweitzer, to get a huge pool of mentors because, pool, that's funny, no pun intended on the whole paddling thing, um, because we need mentors. I, just like my story with Gary Steele illustrates, mentorship is powerful for the mentor and the mentee. We have so many people at Schweitzer who are looking for mentors. And research has proven that for anybody to take a major step in their life, the most important aspect of that growth is a mentor relationship. Now, Jim Mason is preaching the sermon in a couple of other services. And at this point, he's talking about the Lord has given this great passion for uh, sports camps to do sports camps, to partner with FCA and Principal Laura. Great. If you were up here preaching this sermon right now, what would you say? What passion has the Lord put in your life, the way that you are created to be a wounded healer at this time in your life? Well, as the band comes up to lead us in some more worship, I'd like you to think about the following two questions. How are you going to accept Jesus' restoration more fully? And how are you going to be Jesus' restoration to others? Thank you.